Welcome to the Bare Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregg. Welcome to lovehonorandvacuum.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and sex life. And it is the last Thursday of the month. So this is a podcast that is especially male-friendly, although women are going to enjoy this one too. So I have my husband, Keith, on. Hey, everybody. And we're going to talk about something important today. I mean, it's always important, but this one I'm, I'm really excited about because this is something I've been reading a ton about, yeah. which is attachment theory mm-hmm. and how that relates to parenting and marriage and even our relationship with God. So I'm really excited cool. to get into that. Sounds great. Um, before we do, a couple of things. I know that so many of you who listen to my podcast have found my work and this podcast life-changing. And, and I really appreciate hearing mm-hmm. from all you guys. And some a lot of you say, like, what can we do to help? So here's something really simple. Please rate this podcast five stars. Okay, wherever you listen to it, just give it a rating. That helps other people see it. And will you download the podcast instead of just hitting play or listening to it through a player? Mm-hmm. Because the download numbers help us tremendously as we try to get sponsors. So if you can just download this podcast while you listen to it, and then you can always just delete it afterwards. <laughs> but that really can help us because in the next few months, now that we have a little bit more breathing room, when our books are in, we're going to try to get some sponsors for this podcast. So that would help us a ton. And of course, using our links to get Nick's bras so that your boobs can look amazing. Although this is a guy's podcast. So, <laughs> you know, buy your wife some Nick's bras. <laughs> and we also have some awesome merch in the store some be a biblical woman um quite funny uh notebooks and bags and mugs that you can buy the love and respect the love and respect (laughs) mug that you can buy because healthy people need both which goes right along with attachment theory so check out our merch store too and doing all of these things can help you help us which we so appreciate okay attachment theory Okay. You do a lot of this in pediatrics. I, well, this is the thing I was thinking. I probably do a lot of this stuff, but I haven't really specifically studied attachment <laughs> theory. So I'm like, I don't know. I, this is probably, it's probably, you're probably going to say things. I'm going to go, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But, yeah. <laughs> but I haven't actually studied attachment theory, like in psychology class, like people sometimes do. Right. I know this is Becca's thing. She's probably upset. Mm-hmm. She's not on this and, not, and you instead. But you know, <laughs> hey, it's the guy. Well, you're doing the whole month of May on it. So yes, she'll be we on are. Eventually. Yeah, and we're bringing on one of her good friends mm-hmm. um, next week. Wendy Snyder, who talks a lot about parenting, is going to join us mm-hmm. on that. But I wanted to actually start our series on attachment by looking not at attachment parenting or mm-hmm. attachment in marriage, but actually attachment to God. Yeah. Because I think this is the most fundamental. Yeah. And where often our views of God can get our spirituality all messed up. And so I am going to start today's podcast with an interview that I just recorded with Crispin Mayfield. Well, I am so glad to welcome onto the podcast Crispin Mayfield, who is a licensed professional counselor in the Portland, Oregon area. Crispin, thank you for being here. I'm so excited. I'm a big fan of yours. So was very honored that you asked me to come talk. Yeah, and I feel like we kind of go way back a little bit on Twitter, and and you interviewed us for an article in Sojourners Magazine on the Great Sex Rescue. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. It was it was really fun to interview both you and Rebecca. I love the mother daughter dynamic. That uh, is really fun. Yeah, very very strange, strange strange family, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of families, your book Attached to God is awesome. And I read it last week as I was uh, flying back and forth to Denver. And I really want to go into this in May on how attachment science 
relates to our marriages and to our relationship with God. And I thought I would start the whole thing off with your book, if that's okay. So tell me, what is attachment science? So this basically is looking at our drive to connect with others. And we started, um, we, (laughs) the field started (laughs) in the 40s and 50s, really after World War II. There were all these kids that had been separated from their parents that had been evacuated because of bombings, et cetera. And really the understanding at that time was you know, kids just need uh, someone to change their dirty diapers and feed them food and make sure they're warm. That's all they need. And so then psychologists were recognizing that that was not all that kids needed. And so that's really where attachment science was born was understanding that babies, even, you know, as young as one year old have this incredible drive to connect with a parent, even a parent that isn't able to give them food or protection. And then we went from there and we were like, all right, uh, it turns out that this drive doesn't go away. So that's where we look at romantic relationships and partnerships and marriage. And I'm actually trained in emotionally focused therapy, which is a couple's therapy based on attachment and really looking at this idea that um, we have this drive to connect. And sometimes that drive to connect can look like I'm really mad at you because you're not showing up for me in the ways that I expected you would from the outside or from the other partner. It's like, how is this connection? It just seems like you want me to go away. You're so mad at me. But um really what we found understanding attachment science is that is our attachment system coming on and saying something isn't right here and I need to do something about it because this drive for connection is is so deep. And then uh, there's actually been research about this with attachment to God and mm-hmm. how we have this drive to connect with God, which is uh, what I wrote my book about. I actually defer from the, the academics a little bit or... Um, yeah, we, we see things a little differently in some ways, because most of the academics will say like, oh, yeah, from this perspective of attachment, God is just the best attachment figure ever. God is always there for you. God is never mm-hmm. judging you. God is just like this divine parent that is just, you know, full of love for you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, uh, that wasn't exactly my experience growing up in my church. <laughs> It was like, yeah, God's always there, but God is always looking over my shoulder. God is always judging me. God is always disappointed in me. But what attachment science says is when there is that rupture in the relationship, if it feels like there's something wrong in the relationship, we will do what we can to try to repair it. And so um, a lot of the book is looking at what are the ways when it feels like things aren't okay between me and God, what are the ways that I deal with that? And Sometimes, sometimes that means, uh, you know, being really anxious and making sure you confessed all your sins. Sometimes (laughs) it's like, I'm just going to like shut down my emotions and just hold on to faith. Um, It looks some different ways, but that's, that's an overview of attachment in three different realms. (laughs) Right. Perfect. Okay. So I want to, I want to read something that you said, you said in the church, we know what we think about our relationship with God, but that can be very different from how we feel about it. In most church communities, we're afraid to talk about our insecurities with God because we feel that we should not have them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, it's actually a sin to feel like you're not connected to God. Like we have to keep trying to feel connected and it's an entirely a one-way thing. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you talk about three different ways that we can have insecure attachment, like, like the anxious attachment, mm-hmm. the shut down attachment. And you mentioned both those. And then the, the shame filled attachment where mm-hmm. we feel like we're just too awful. And I love you go into detail and all those, we won't have time to do that, but I just, I, I want to, I, I have so many quotes I need to read my audience because they're so good. So I'm going to read a bunch of quotes and then get you to comment on them. So here's one. This confusing experience is made worse by the formulas were given by our faith communities. In his book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren tells us you're as close to God as you choose to be. This becomes salt in the wound when we desperately want God to be close, but we experience only absence. If we feel far from God, we assume it's because we are not taking the steps, not because we don't have an accurate map. If we don't feel close, it must be our unwillingness to take the trek that keeps us apart. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like, we have this idea of like, you have everything you need to feel close to God, which, Mm -hmm. you know, really, um, ignores you know there's there is uh, historically so much good writing about dark night of the soul deeply spiritual people that have felt really far from god Mm -hmm. but in the church right it's all about like all right we'll do these things and then you'll feel close to god and if it's just you and god in a relationship then that means that you must be the problem because god can't be the problem right Right. And you're not doing it or you're not trying hard enough. And so really what I looked at in the book is like, well, what if there are some other things, these, these feelings we have, right? So we know, you know, we think God is loving, God is forgiving, God is compassionate, God wants to be close to you, but we don't always feel those things. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not your fault if you feel that way. It's the yeah. thing that I want people to know is like you've been given, you know, a lot of us have been given messages in different ways, sometimes through our the family we grew up with, sometimes certain teachers or pastors or theologians we've followed that give this sort of message of like, yeah, God wants wants to be close to you. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think for me growing up in the church, I was always like, all right, God wants me. God wants to save me, but God is really keeping me around until heaven when I'm made perfect. Like now me as like a 16 year old, you know, I know that I'm far from perfect. I keep on sinning. I keep on looking at porn. Like, and so God must be really disgusted with me. And that is that feeling that's there. And so it makes it hard to believe that God actually wants to be near us. And so we get these messages where it's like, yeah, God, God, God doesn't feel close right now. And, you know, for me, I was like, well, if I would just sinned less, if I, you know, was a little bit better, if I was more perfect, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, then God would want to be near me, but God doesn't want me close. Yeah. It's amazing. I think about how much of the worship service the typical evangelical worship service is all about God um, come near to us. We invite you to this place. We're excited Mm -hmm. about you being here. We love you, et cetera. And then it's like trying to get people to have this emotion, but God's already near. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. he's already everywhere. (laughs) You know, Psalm 139, if I go down to the depths, you are there. Mm -hmm. You know, if I go to the highest heights, you're there. Like wherever we go, God is already there. But we're always saying come near and it just, it, it seems like we're so desperate for connection, but we don't recognize that we already have it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that um, 
I, I drew a lot on some more contemplative spirituality um, in the book. There are traditions that, you know, say, yeah, part of the spiritual life is being able to recognize that God is near and making space for that, making space for us to catch up, not for God to come near, but for us to be like, to catch up to that realization that God is yeah. already near. I think Henry Nouwen is a really great example of that. He talks all the time about like that work that of the spiritual life is recognizing those things that are already true um, about our relationship with God and about us, that we are beloved, that God is near, that God delights in us. Mm -hmm. um, but like you said, it, in, in church services, a lot of times it gets flipped. Yeah. <laughs> like, like if, if we don't feel close to God, there has to be sin separating us. And so mm -hmm. we're always feeling like in order to get close to God, I have to be more perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. Even though that's not the way Jesus acted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And, and it can, you know, it was so, uh, it was so important to me to recognize that that self-critical voice in my head is not the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's what happens for a lot of us is like, yeah, I, I totally believe the Holy spirit convicts us, mm -hmm. but, um, if I'm kind of basing this idea of God's closeness based on like this narrative in my head of like how good I am or uh, how holy I am, like I am never going to feel very close to God because I'm mm -hmm. always going to come up with that thing that I could be doing a little bit better at. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all have that. Okay. I want to read something else you said. Okay. Um, you said anxious attachment is a pattern of worriedly seeking closeness with God, fearing that the moment we relax, we will backslide into separation. We're convinced it's entirely up to us to maintain closeness with God, which means we can never actually rest with God. It's up to you to stay close to God through prioritizing time in prayer, regular church attendance, or scheduled Bible reading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is that, uh, I, that part of like, you can't actually rest is important because mm -hmm. if you don't point that out, I think a lot of people are, it logically makes sense in the culture that we, the church culture we've been in is like, yeah, that is what the Christian faith is about. You know, you just try hard. You just, you know, you need to work so hard, but um, I just, I was really impacted recognizing that when God brings Israel out of Egypt, God sets up this new nation, right? This is like the first time that God is like, here's a nation I'm calling my own. Mm -hmm. I'm setting up the rules. And the thing that was most distinctive about that nation was that they rested once a week, yeah. you know? And so, and then we, you know, Jesus talks about rest and peace. Paul talks about those things. And so mm -hmm. if we find that our Christian life is, doesn't have those things, um, then we've missed something. And again, it's not your fault. Um, mm -hmm. This is just like, as a community, we've missed something. Yeah. And I think what we end up telling ourselves is like, oh, I don't have that rest or peace because once I get to this point, <laughs> then I will, then I can stop trying so hard or stop white knuckling it. But you don't get to that point. Um, you really have to make an intentional decision to say, I'm going to I'm going to trust God that I don't have to work hard. I'm going to trust God that God mm -hmm. says, like, I will be near you no matter where you are. Like, I think that actually is like a, a work of faith in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, when we talk about attachment, like, I love how you weave in attachment with kids because that's what we can understand, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you use, you use the parenting attachment 
um, as an illustration of insecure attachment with God <laughs> and what can, <laughs> what can make kids feel insecure. Um, and we understand it with kids, but we don't really understand it with God because we have framed attachment with God in terms of trying harder. Like we always need to be trying. We always need to be practicing disciplines. If we're not close, it must be because we're doing something wrong. And what I like about, about your book is that you locate a lot of the issues with doctrine. It's harmful teachings. It's exactly what I've been saying in great sex rescue. It's like, it's not your fault. If sex is terrible, it may just be the stuff you believed. And, and what you're saying too, is if your relationship with God is terrible, it may not be because of you. It just may be some of the stuff you believe that's made intimacy really difficult. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. What I would say is like, there is, there is some research that shows that um, where your early life experiences have a big impact on how you take in that theology. Mm -hmm. um, and so on some level, like I, what I, I think about it as a protective factor. So if you grew up with uh, parents that just really delighted in you and loved you and were, were good enough parents, you might hear a quote from Charles Spurgeon talking about how the Christian life is like climbing up a mountain of ice and, you know, you have to like hack every single step. And if you slide for a moment, it's, you know, you're going to slide down the mountain. You might hear that and be like, okay, like I hear that, but it doesn't like resonate in a way mm -hmm. of like, I know that I'm, I'm lovable and that like, I don't have to try that hard to get belonging and love. But if you grew up in a family that was dysfunctional or you went through like trauma where mm -hmm. you've been given this message of like you are unlovable or there's something wrong with you, you have to try really hard to fit in here. Those theological messages are going to just make it that much worse. And uh, I've actually heard some pastors say, well, that's their problem. They need to go to counseling um, mm -hmm. if they're hearing it this way. I would respond and say the church needs to be a place that those that have been harmed, that have been in dysfunctional relationships or had parents that, that harmed them or didn't show up for them. We should prioritize what are the messages we want those people to hear. We want those people to know, Hey, God is not like that. Like, let's make it abundantly clear. Like let's not leave any ambiguity God delights in you. God is with you. God is not disgusted with you, you know, and that doesn't, you know, people jump to like, well, does that mean people, you know, people don't do things wrong? No, like every parent knows your mm -hmm. kid needs, <laughs> like you don't just let your kid do what they want, but that doesn't impact the way that you feel about them. Right. That's the big difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I like what you did too. The, your book is filled with quotes from, from people that have said things that could be harmful. So thank you for taking some of the, the arrows that, that often are lobbed at me. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for sharing that with yeah. me. Um, but I, I want to read a couple of them. So here's one. John MacArthur declares lack of joy is a sin for the child of God. So what does this mean for countless Christians who struggle daily with depression? Yeah, exactly. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, it really, that's, that's that shutdown attachment style, which is like, if I'm going to get close to God, um, then I need to, uh, I need to, you know, feel joyful. I need to be happy. I need to be at peace. I can't feel worried or sad or depressed because that mm -hmm. means that there's something wrong with my faith. 
And I think that really misunderstands emotions and faith. So I'm not saying uh, when, when I critique these things, I believe that God does give us comfort, but we come to God with our emotions. Right. And yeah. And we say, you know, you read the Psalms, right? You actually, you read like a big portion of scripture, whether it's like prophets or whoever that are like talking about, you know, uh, anxiety, worry, sadness all the time and allowing God to come in and meet us in those places, which is, you know, the couples therapist in me is like, yeah, that's actually where intimacy happens. Mm -hmm. It's not when we pretend like everything's okay so that we can keep this relationship. Okay. It's mm -hmm. actually, I'm sharing this with God and God is meeting me in this place of pain. Yeah. It's like, it's like you talked about in the Psalms, how there's so many Psalms, like 40% or something where David's just mad. He's mad. He's sad. <laughs> he's desperate. And they always end with hope. But then the, often the way we see that is, see, you're supposed to be hopeful as opposed to realizing the only reason they got to hope was because they were able to express the other thing. Mm -hmm, exactly. They were able to be honest. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh huh. And actually, uh, I mean, the research shows that when, when parents help kids name their emotions and create space for mm -hmm. it, uh, the reactivity in their brain goes down by 70%. So just, just kind of those like chemicals, those like upset chemicals that are flowing around, uh, reduced by 70%. Um, just having a parent that says, Oh yeah, like it makes sense that you feel, you know, it makes sense that you feel mad that I didn't let you have another piece of candy. I'm, I'm not going to let you have another piece of candy, but I can stay with you in these emotions and help you through it. Mm -hmm. um, rather than, you know, expecting, um, you know, a kid to not have emotions. And right. again, we do the same thing with God where it's like, well, if I'm going to get close to God, I need to make sure that I feel the right way. Yeah. I need to be happy. I don't get right. another piece of candy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, I want to read to you something you said about an agonizing dilemma with insecure attachment, which is kind of what, what we've been talking about here. So shame filled attachment style puts us in a terrible place where we feel better when we're distant from God and feel worse about ourselves when we're close yet we need closeness. So we're caught in a terrible dilemma though. We long to draw near to God. As we come closer, we can see only disgust in the eyes of the divine. Yeah, this is basically why I wrote this whole book. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because like I said before, it's like I was always told, like, go to God, you know, God is there for you. God is this, you know, even in psychology, we say like, you know, a lot of times like God is a really good resource for people because here's, you know, this divine presence that can always, you know, comfort you and be there for you. But for my experience, it was always like, growing up in the church, it was like, well, if I'm going to get close to God in terms of like going to a worship service or having prayer or reading the Bible, it, I, I always just felt faced with like how bad I was and how, mm -hmm. you know, unlovable I was. And so then you're kind of stuck. Like, I don't, I want to be close to God. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I, I don't want to feel bad about myself. Um, and and I think, you know, uh, J.D. Greer, former uh, Southern Baptist. <laughs> I have that quote, too. <laughs> okay, I have why that, don't I you go ahead down. and read it? Yeah. One of the surest signs that you've never met God is that you feel pretty good about yourself. Exactly right. And yeah. and uh, 
I will. I, I've talked with some people about this. I think God has different messages for different people. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, if, if you're familiar with uh, Chuck DeGroat's work, um, he wrote when narcissism comes to church, mm-hmm. you know, there, there probably are a handful of pastors or more that like they have really good self-confidence and they like, maybe they need to hear that part of like, Hey, you're not as awesome as you think. Right. (laughs) But uh, when that gets projected into, into the people that they care for, I'm thinking like, what's that mean for that person that is really, you know, has gone through trauma and they feel like I'm, I'm totally, you know, an abuse. I'm totally unlovable. Who could ever love me? I'm just, a terrible person they barely show up to church they're sitting in the back row and then they hear this they hear well if you feel good about yourself that means that you're not a spiritual person and that just gets reinforced that self-hatred and i would contrast that again i love henry nowen um because he says that the you know part of the spiritual life is pushing aside that self-rejection and believing the good things that god says about me that we are you know, made in God, you know, God delights in us. Right. And that doesn't change with our behavior. So it's not saying that everything you do is good. It's just saying that no matter what you do, God is still there. God delights in you. God isn't any more distant Mm -hmm. from you, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Which actually also fits the early church fathers first, like, I think maybe 200 years of uh, church theology uh, was talking about the uh, God being immutable and unchanging and dispassionate, which really was this idea of like, God is love. So God does not change the way that God feels about us. And yeah, again, like God responds to our behavior, like any good parent um, mm-hmm. and can set boundaries, but it doesn't change the way that God feels about us. Yeah. That he's always, I love, I love that so much. I honestly found this book so freeing. You said some, a number of things mm. that I'd never thought of before, even though I've been on a journey with this whole attachment idea <laughs> for quite a while. So I just, it was great attached to God, please go get it. I will put a link in the podcast notes, but you talk about these three different attachment styles, mm. anxious, shut down, shut down. and shame filled. Mm-hmm. And then what those look like. And then you go into how to address each of those three things in different mm-hmm. chapters, along with some really practical exercises, which, which I really enjoyed. And I That's think the I therapist probably... in me coming out, like what, <laughs> what can I actually leave with you with to work on this week? Yeah. I like that. I like that. Now I probably relate most to the, to the anxious attachment style, but I, I, I think most of my quotes that I took from the shutdown, maybe cause that's what I see so much in marriage. So I don't know. I just was mm-hmm. not my marriage, but just as we've been talking about marriage, one of the things that, that hit me as I was reading more about the shutdown attachment style, where you're afraid to have any emotions, you can't express your emotions because emotions are scary and emotions get you in trouble because when you express emotions, other people express displeasure. Mm-hmm. And we get this from God too, right? You're not allowed to be sad. You're not allowed to be anxious. It's a sin to worry, et cetera, et cetera. And so then we can't ever be honest with God. All we can ever say is, is we love you, God. And you're so great, even when we're not feeling that way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering, like Jen, you have a quote from Jen Wilkin, who says, we must love God with our minds, allowing our intellect to inform our emotions rather than the other way around. And I think I have said stuff like this a ton in the past. So this isn't picking on Jen. Like the, I, mm-hmm. I could probably right. play, play a recording of me saying this in some of my women's talks, 
you know, 10 years ago, but, but why do we hate feeling so much? <laughs> well, yeah. And I, I just want to jump in and we say we can blame uh, therapists like me because this is a version of cognitive behavioral therapy of like yeah. your, your, your thoughts impact your emotions. And so just change your thoughts. That is a really good question about why do we hate emotions so much? <laughs> where, where my mind goes is a systems and power approach, which is if we engage in our emotions, we tend to see more suffering in the world. And so those that have held power, I mean, if, if we think about what this has looked like um, in patriarchal marriages, Right. If we if we really look at the way that this is has caused suffering to women and abuse of women, then we need to look at our theology and ask, like, hey, is this actually working? And if we change our theology, we might also lose some of our power. We also will get thrown into this place that's scary of like not knowing. And so the better thing to do is to not feel or to say, well, it doesn't matter how you feel. Here's the truth. Yeah. A story that stands out to me is that right at the beginning of the slave trade where African people were enslaved, they were brought to Portugal. And there's this there's man, I can't remember his name now, mm -hmm. in the royal court who sees the suffering of human beings and, uh, and starts to cry. And then he says, but I know that God wants us to enslave these people for the good of the church and for the good of Christendom. Uh, they would go to hell. Otherwise we will make them Christians. Mm. And so he prays, God, take away my tears, take away my feelings. Mm. Um, and so I think that is a lot of where this comes from is it's a very vulnerable place to be if we open ourselves up to the suffering in the world, including in ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Like the, the places that we suffer. I think about Brene Brown talking about empathy and how mm -hmm. empathy requires us both to be open to other people's experiences and also to mm -hmm. like our own sadness or our own fear or our own pain. Yeah. And I, used, I, I remember reading that several times in your book, you said that that once we get secure attachment with God so that we're able to acknowledge our emotions, that's when we're able to see the suffering mm -hmm. in others and, and, and really bring the kingdom, you know, be part of that. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and bringing the kingdom. I really love that. Okay. I want to focus on two stories okay. in your book that meant a lot to me. The first is just a simple one and I'll read it. It's from a paragraph and I don't know why it's such a, it's an innocuous paragraph, but this really stuck with me. But you said this, my experience as a therapist has helped shift me away from shame-filled spirituality. People often come into my office with behaviors that hurt themselves and others, but I don't tell them to get out of my office until they've become better people. I am so glad to spend time with them and to help them grow and heal. They don't even need to know how to grow and change. I can help them with that. I just need them to take some steps of trust with me as we walk forward together. God approaches us in a similar way, wanting to walk through the journey of healing and growth together. That was beautiful. I just mm -hmm. had never thought of that before. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, they didn't have uh, therapists in Jesus's time. But, um, you know, I love that idea of like the great physician. Like we have mm -hmm. these healing pictures of God throughout scripture. And this is also kind of the role of parent, right? Mm -hmm. Is 
that role of parent is I have a six-year-old and an 11-year-old. So all the time we're talking about like, hey, what are, what are your actions? How does it impact you? How does it impact others? But it's really because I want their good. I want, you know, whether it's my clients or whether it's uh, my kids, it's like, I want you to flourish. I want you to be a part of a healthy community. The Bible Project did a really great series on law. And one of the things that they talk about is we've really missed uh, the Hebrew law isn't God saying, follow these rules um, or you're out. It's not God being like, I mm-hmm. need you to follow these to keep me happy, which is what we a, a lot of what mm-hmm. we've uh, done with that since Luther. God is just saying, this is for your benefit. This is because I want to see you flourish. I want to see you as a community take care of the people that are marginalized. I want there to be justice. I want people to get cared for. Um, Mm -hmm. I want healthy relationships. And so um, I think Mm -hmm. that we've lost that view of God. And so that's where I think God as therapist is, has been a really powerful idea for me because it is, it doesn't mean that we just throw right and wrong out the window, which some people worry about, Mm -hmm. but that's not the, you know, really the root of it is I want is love, right? I love you and I want you to be well. Yeah. And I'm happy to walk alongside you, even if you're uh-huh. not well yet. Right. You know? Exactly. And yeah. I, 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 that's really, that's really fun. Okay. The other one, which I think is really going to hit people is the origin of the wordless book mm-hmm. that we often have used in, um, in salvation stories. It's a, and well, why don't you tell the story of where it came from your grandmother and then Spurgeon. So <laughs> right, tell, yeah. tell us that. Yeah. So um, my my grandma would make these a lot and maybe you've um, seen the bracelet version or other versions, but there are these, you know, few colors and they kind of tell the quote unquote gospel story. So you have the black page, which is uh, sin, the red page, which is Jesus's blood, the white page, which is your heart after it's been washed. Um, there are some other colors that have been added along the way. Um, but what I really focus on is this black page. And, um, if you're not familiar with this, maybe you're familiar with, um, an experience like, um, when, uh, an evangelistic, uh, youth group came to our apartment complex a few years ago and did a sermon, you know, kind of a gospel illustration where they had a white rag. And then every time you sin, uh, you know, you throw dirt on it. Um, and so this idea of like, you know, my heart is dirty or black or defective. And what I found so striking is that as I was doing research into attachment and this psychological side of things, I found that um, people that had or kids that have gone through a lot of attachment trauma, um, a lot of severe abuse had this feeling like there's something at my core that drives other people away. That's disgusting. That's broken. It's like my heart is black. Um, Dr. Karen Purvis, uh, who is at Texas Christian University, um, she did just amazing work with kids that had been through the foster care system. And she talks about hearing story after story of these kids feeling like, you know, my heart is, is uh, disgusting or full of black goo, et cetera. And I was like, 
that's that's the same message that I got in Sunday school. <laughs> um, and so um, what I found was that I did some research about like, where did this illustration come from? And Charles Spurgeon, who I mentioned before, he was a revivalist preacher in the uh, 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, he debuted this illustration at a special event where they um, in London what was unique about this is they brought in kids from all the orphanages everywhere. So you have all these kids that have gone through attachment trauma that Mm -hmm. psychologically, you know, we know their attachment system is telling them because your needs haven't been met because uh, you've been harmed by the people that are supposed to protect you. There must be something really wrong with you. Mm -hmm. Um, so he presents this message that says, you know, your hearts are black and what do you know? It resonated really deeply (laughs) and they took that as like a, you know, oh, well, yeah, this must be a really important message. Um, what they didn't know is that these kids didn't feel like their hearts were black because of sin. They felt that way because they had been abused or neglected and they, you know, didn't Mm -hmm. have caregivers that could care for them. Um, and so that really clicked for me, um, just starting to think through um, some of those messages that we we're given and wondering, like, is this the most helpful message? Yeah, because it's like what you were saying is like it's misdiagnosing the problem, mm-hmm. because when a lot of us do feel that intense shame, it's not because we feel like we're intensely sinful people. It's because we feel like we're intensely unlovable people. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, we, when we think about, um, you know, Bernie Brown's work was really helpful in this project. Um, she talks about, uh, you know, shame being that, that feeling like, because I've, I'm flawed, I'm not mm-hmm. worthy of love and belonging. And really, I think we don't, you know, what we end up doing is like, okay, well, I need to be pure and perfect if I'm going to get close to God. Mm -hmm. Um, And then that feeling will go away. But what I found is that a lot of times that feeling doesn't go away, even after we've said the sinner's prayer once or a hundred times, as some people do, because we have this feeling, what we really need to know is we are loved. And Uh, The picture that I was given a lot growing up was salvation is like a judicial court scene, right? Where you have to pay the price. Jesus pays the price for you. um, Mm -hmm. So you get to go to heaven, you get out of hell, you get out of jail. Um, And I'm not saying that's not true, but what I think is a really good picture is the prodigal son. And like, we don't want to be told like, you know, you, you are get off scotch-free. You don't have consequences. What we want to be told is we want to just be hugged, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe told nothing. We just want to be wrapped up in a huge hug that says you are lovable. I delight in you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a a big reason why Jesus came. Jesus comes to be with us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's um, prodigal son story is, is a big one for me. I know one thing that has really struck me because I've been reading the gospels a lot lately because um, I'm, I'm trying to just listen to Jesus's words for a while and, and not mm-hmm. see things through other lenses. And it's amazing how the marginalized felt so safe with him mm-hmm. and how people who didn't have their act together felt safe with him. while people who did have their act together, supposedly <laughs> were uh-huh. often very threatened by him. And it seems that in the church, we've reversed that. Mm-hmm. And we've told people that you're not safe with God. 
Mm-hmm. Right, unless you yeah. have your act together. And so again, this isn't this isn't saying that <laughs> Christianity isn't right. It's just saying that perhaps we've emphasized the wrong things mm-hmm. and we need to see these stories in different ways. And I love how in Attached to God, you really do bring it back to different Bible stories in different ways. Um, Mary DeMuth was on a few weeks ago talking about Hagar and you talk about Hagar in a beautiful way mm-hmm. as well. I think that she, that woman is just Hagar is just becoming known. Uh-huh. <laughs> She's been ignored for so long, but the, right. we talk about her in the great sex rescue. Uh-huh. Right. You know, the God who sees me. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can just get a picture of that, the God who sees me mm-hmm. and I'm safe being vulnerable with God, mm-hmm. you know, I'm safe telling God my feelings and my fears and my anger and my lamentations and all of that. And, and he holds that. Mm-hmm. And he yeah. doesn't just, he doesn't just tell us, okay, well, now that you've gotten that out of, out off your chest, let's reframe it into something else. He, he, you know, he just sits there uh-huh. with us. Yeah. And I love and, that. Right. And I think I'm, I recognize in this conversation, I'm leaning towards the, like, def, not defend, explaining to critics that might be like, you know, there's that worry, like, are we emphasizing God's love too much? Something mm-hmm. like that. But what is really beautiful about um, the attachment research is that we find that when people feel secure, when they know, like, I'm, I'm loved no matter what I do. um, And my emotions are welcome here. And I just, you know, I have this, I, this, this feeling of being unconditionally loved and accepted. They make more ethical decisions. They are able to manage their emotions better. They're, you know, less likely to you know, have angry outbursts. Right. Um, they tend to be more empathic. So when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, we we look at like these things that Jesus and Paul and uh, you know, Hebrew law tells us to do, right? The there is this like these commands that are given. And what we find is that when we know that we are loved, whether we follow the commands or not, we're actually more able to walk in those ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and walk in the way of Jesus. Um, well, and and really, like you said, you know, the Hebrew law and even even Jesus's summation of the Hebrew law to love the Lord your God with all your heart, souls, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. It's about connection. Uh huh. Exactly. You know, it, it is about mm-hmm. connection, and that's that's what God wants is the God of reconciliation. So thank you for that. I think it's a great book, attached to God. I'll put a link in the podcast notes. Crispin, where can people find you, or what um, do you want them to know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, there aren't that many Crispin Mayfields out there, so I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah. Um, you can always go to attachedtogod.com to buy my book. But yeah, if, you know, if you liked this podcast episode and had some follow-up questions i love when people reach out to me on social media and they're like hey i was wondering about this so yeah please please find me out there in the wild because i love connecting with people that are interested in this topic awesome well thank you so much it's great to have you (laughs) yeah thank you so much i just found that fascinating like i really enjoyed his book attached to god I, I just, I, everybody should read it. Mom should read it. Mom would love it. You would read it. You should read it. You yeah. would love it. Like just, just seeing how, you know, the more we view it as our fault, if we don't feel connected actually hurts us. 
from feeling connected to God. It's just, it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. Really, really interesting. So let's take this attachment to God and take it into other realms a little bit. And I have a new research segment of the week here. We got some new research to share. This is from the journal Current Opinion in Psychology. And it is looking at how our attachment with our parents affects our religious life. So it's kind of like a combination of attachment to God, attachment with our parents, okay? And I just want to read a paragraph that came that came out of this journal article. Here we go. There's also evidence that secure attachment with our parents facilitates intergenerational transmission of religion. At high levels of parental religiosity, individuals reporting responsive caregiving score higher on religion variables than those reporting less favorable caregiving. Similarly, Greenwald et al. found that more attachment-secure adults tended to experience a religious change that was generally aligned with their parents' level of religiosity during childhood. By contrast, attachment anxiety was associated with more sudden changes, more rejection of parents' religiosity, and more emotional compensation themes and attachment avoidance was associated with weaker exploration and socialization themes. Finally, in a short-term perspective study of religious development during adolescence, secure attachment with parents predicted subsequent reaffirmation of their parents' faith. Do you want to try to translate that? Do you want to go for it? That's quite a mouthful. I was going to say, you should probably tell people what that means in like, Easy yes, English. Yes. Basically what they're saying is that the more attached you are to your parents, mm-hmm. the more securely attached you are, the more likely as you grow up that your faith will align with your parents. Mm-hmm. And the less securely attached you are to your parents, then the more likely it is that you will reject your parents' religiosity and faith. Mm-hmm. We focus so much on how to make sure that our kids experience our faith or adopt our faith. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is just have a good relationship with your kids. <laughs> yeah. We were like that very much with the kids who were growing up too, that the, you know, when they had their questions, as all teenagers do, we mm-hmm. embraced that. Mm-hmm. And, and so many evangelicals are, don't question anything. You know, we're so scared that you're going to reject the faith that we become very, we make it a very difficult situation for them to actually think through these things. And these things are tough issues that people deal with. And so, yeah. You know, saying it's okay, you can question things, and you're still my daughter, you're still my son, I still love you, mm-hmm. you know, just, we'll work it out, don't worry about it, you know, is, is a much healthier view than, don't you dare, don't believe differently than me, because then yes. you just drive them away. Yeah, which is actually very much in line with what Rebecca wrote in Why I Didn't Rebel, her mm-hmm. book Why I Didn't mm-hmm. Rebel. It wasn't about having rules, it wasn't about making sure that your kids believe certain things, it was how to keep those lines of communication open. Mm-hmm. And, and allow your kids, yeah, to, to question and to not agree and to, to have different opinions than you sometimes. Because when they feel like they're accepted no matter what, then they're more likely to be able to adopt that faith on their own mm-hmm. instead of feeling pressured into it. You know, so attachment, attachment matters. If you want your kids to become a Christian, because most of us do, we want our kids to adopt our faith, mm-hmm. then don't, don't present faith as something which is so scary. Like, like if you don't do this, God will reject you. And so please do this the way that we were just talking about with Crispin, but instead just make it a part of a natural part of your family and make sure that your kids feel like they're accepted. And we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. But now let's turn to, to set this up for this month as well, let's turn to attachment in marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I have two stories for you. Okay. All right, I bought, I got both of these emails on the same day. And I thought it was so interesting because I think both of them are like the opposite stories, mm-hmm. but I think the root of both of them is attachment. 
attachment problems. So one woman, the story was so long, I'm just going to, I'm just going to try to summarize it. But basically what she was saying is that she married her best friend. Okay. So, so she really felt like, like he was her best friend. But then when they got married and she hadn't realized this, he started saying, well, you need to do what I say. Like you need, I need to make the decisions because I'm your head. Mm -hmm. And suddenly she felt like, well, then we're not friends anymore. Right. Like I'm under you. And so she started expressing her displeasure and he got really upset about that, you know, and he's like, no, we need to make decisions. And if she spoke up, then um, he would just shut down entirely. And so whenever they had a conflict, instead of trying to work through that conflict, he would just say, well, we're supposed to do it this way because that's what God says. And so he got more and more conflict avoidant and was using the Bible to say, well, what I say goes. And she just could never bring up anything emotional or anything like I am feeling like this because he would shut down and say, well, we're going to do this way because I'm the head, you know, and and he was just taking control and several things happened. She worked through that. Sure. She's in a different place now. They're trying to go to a different church. He's, you know, it it was a very long story, but that was the root of the issue. Mm -hmm. And then there was another woman who wrote this. She says, thank you for your work. I've been binge listening to your content and it's blowing my evangelically brainwashed mind. We've been married for several decades and we're a complete prototype of all the worst of married Christian sex that you talk about. Wow. Yeah. Obligation sex is a killer. And I actually heard my husband tell me things like, you just don't like sex. After suffering excruciating cramping through one night, sobbing in pain, in the morning he informed me that although I suffer, I don't suffer nearly as much as he does because of his extreme sexual need. For years, he rarely initiated, telling himself that if I really loved him, I would. Anyway, I have a few unanswered questions. I have never had trouble with orgasm, and my husband does take his time, but I even orgasm out of duty, not love. Hmm. The real issue is that our relationship is so broken. Part of it is that the mental load is not balanced. Your podcasts have helped both of us understand and label and tackle this nameless thing that was destroying our partnership. So that's great. And I will put a link to our podcast on mental load and to our mental load series because I know that was really helpful for so many people. But then she says this. My husband is extremely passive, but willing to help me with housework. He is now owning certain chores. The mental load that we can't seem to share is the emotional and spiritual well-being of our children who are now teenagers. I find that your podcast focus much on getting men to learn to enable a woman's sexual enjoyment. But for me, I feel empty, used and broken after an orgasm. I think it's called sexual nonconformance. It's actually sexual nonconcordance, nonconcordance. I, I was at um, Colorado Christian University last week and I made everyone learn that arousal nonconcordance. Very important. It's when your mind and your body don't match up. So your body's having a good time, but your mind is saying, no, I don't want to do this. Oh, your body's responding. Right. The way that it responds in sexual situations. Yes. But but your mind doesn't want to. Or it could be the opposite. Yeah. My body can do it even while I'm crying on the inside. So for me, it's not the housework or the bedroom performance that's an issue. It's having a passive partner who is also quietly harsh non-communicative and sarcastic. He j- non-communicative. How do you say non You say it. Non-communicative. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> and sarcastic. He generally relates to me as though I am his mother to take care of him or his child to be scolded. I can sadly orgasm all day long or see the clean kitchen. He's entirely taken that on and I'm so grateful, but my heart still hurts to the point of crying in the shower despair. Hmm. 
one case, we have a guy who every time they're trying to have an emotional relationship or a conflict, he shuts it down by saying, no, we're going to do it my way. And then we have another guy who's just super, super passive Mm -hmm. and won't engage emotionally. So he says he has these tremendous sexual needs, but he won't initiate. He is non-communicative. Cannot say that word. Non-communicative. Non-communicative. Non. I guess that's it. Non-communicative. He's non-communicative and sarcastic. But again, is you have these two men, um, and it isn't always men. Women can have. That's this what too. I was going to say too. Is that yeah. that we're talking about men? It is the men's podcast at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. But this is not something that's unique to men. No. But when people just can't actually discuss their emotions or feel very shut down Mm -hmm. with their emotions and it really hurts the relationship Mm -hmm. and I think what often happens especially with men and you've talked about this before a lot is that having sex can help you to feel close yeah without having to be close and do the work of being close yeah and so you channel all of your emotional needs into sex and then you feel like you've done your job like hey we're close now Mm -hmm. but she feels totally empty and she's crying so, I mean, I think the thing from, uh, you know, emotional connection and attachment sort of mm-hmm. idea, I think it's very interesting that, you know, a lot of times we talk about a husband-centered marriage versus a Jesus-centered marriage. Mm-hmm. Right? And you and I have always had the concept that, you know, Jesus is the person who's in charge of our marriage and we're both striving after him. Mm-hmm. And people sort of attack you on that and sort of say, well, you want these passive husbands to be ruled by their wives. Yeah. Right. And it's like, here's clearly a case where there's a man who's a totally passive person mm-hmm. whose wife's making all the decisions, And we're not happy about that because that's mm-hmm. not what God wants either. God wants both of us to be mm-hmm. contributing what we're supposed to be bringing to that marriage. Mm-hmm. And, and the issue is that, that the reason that he's not contributing in this case mm-hmm. is because there's this attachment issue where, you know, from whatever happened to him when he was young, he mm-hmm. doesn't have the confidence in himself to say, this is what I'm bringing to this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what I have to offer you as my, as my wife. Um, he just doesn't have that. So instead he just holds back. And the other guy does it in a different way. He's basically yeah. like, he's been taught that a man's in charge. And because he's so insecure in his masculinity, he needs to be in charge over the top mm-hmm. to the point that he shuts her down and doesn't even let her have her say in things yeah. um, because he's too afraid to even engage her. Mm-hmm. Um, so both of these cases are situations where a person, through whatever trauma happened in their past, is, hasn't got a sense of a good sense of self, probably related to attachment issues with their own parents. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is the thing is that so often we would look at these issues and we'd say, OK, this is a marriage issue. Right? Like they are not communicating. They're yeah, not able it's, to deal with it's conflict. impacting the marriage, but mm-hmm. the root is not the, the marriage. Right. The, the root is the thing that they are bringing into the marriage. Yeah. And, and a lot of us have attachment injuries. And when we say trauma, we don't mean necessarily that you were abused, although a lot oh, of yeah, kids yeah, were. Yeah. Sorry, I should have been more clear with that. Yeah. Like, like it can just be where, you know, you might have had parents who, who loved you but were distant or were too mm-hmm. busy. And so you just never felt secure. Like when I have needs, those needs are going to be met. Mm-hmm. Or maybe... Maybe you were raised by a single mom who was amazing and who loved you, but she was just so overworked and overburdened. Mm -hmm. And so when you had big problems and big emotions, she didn't have the energy or the emotional or he, if it was a single dad, you know, or it could just have been two very overworked parents, like whatever. It's not that your parents weren't well-meaning often. It's just that your emotions 
we're seen as something which is then a bother, <laughs> right? Like I can't handle this right now. I don't have the bandwidth for this right now. And so you have to stuff them because when your emotions flare up, when you're upset about something, when you need comfort about something, you see the disapproval in your parents' eyes mm. in whatever in whatever way. And so you've learned that, well, if I, I so desperately need my parents to love me, I so desperately need to feel that I'm accepted. But when I have these emotions, suddenly I'm not accepted. Mm -hmm. And so the emotions get shoved down and then you never know how to deal with your emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's what so many of us are. We're walking wounded. Mm -hmm. You know, we are walking wounded out there and we don't know how to have emotional conversations. And I think that's what both of these women are saying is I want to have emotional conversations with my husband. I want to be able to talk about what I'm scared about or what I want, you know, or what gives me joy or what I think. But whenever I bring these things up, he shuts down and he won't talk to me about his mm -hmm. emotions either. And so the marriage feels really empty. And so what I'm hoping to do in the month of May is to start tackling some of these issues. <laughs> Milan K. Yurkovich, who wrote How We Love, are even going to be with us at the end of May. Um, next week, we're going to talk about parenting attachment. Um, but this is important stuff. Yeah. Like if we can get to the root of this, like think of the marriage issues that we can, that we can start to solve and unpack that have been hurting people for decades. So this is important stuff. I'm excited about this. I've been reading some awesome books. I'm going to be sharing all this with you this, this month. And I, I hope that we can go deeper and understand that, you know, your emotions are not a problem. Yeah. And they don't need to be scary. And you mm -hmm. were made with emotions and they're good. And when we can let ourselves feel our emotions, then we can show up in marriage 100%. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a really big thing. Okay. I want to close the podcast with some encouragement. We haven't done that in a couple of weeks because sure. we've been busy. But can I can I read you a review of our book? Okay. The one that you and I wrote together? Yeah. The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex? Exactly. This is from a guy named Billy. All right. And he says, these books are awesome. And he means both The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex and The Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex. But this one's under The Good Guys. He says, what I most appreciate about the book is its candor. Coming into my marriage, never having sex, and the only knowledge coming from movies and pornography, I was ill-equipped for the truths of sex. My church did not prepare me or my wife as well as I now see they should have. What we've been taught was that it was the wife's duty and that men had to romance their wives. There was never anything about her pleasure or the patience that may be needed to learn what makes your wife happy. I remember in the beginning of our marriage, we were having trouble with consummating due to my wife's vaginismus. And the advice I got was just do it, power through it. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. I did not feel that the advice was sensitive to what we were going through. This book and The Great Sex Rescue have helped me see my marriage and our sex life in a better light, a more hopeful light. I want every married couple to read these books. These books are awesome. Hmm. It's great. Yeah. So, so uh, and again, if the Good Girl's Guide, Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex can become the go-to premarital books, that'd be awesome because then mm. maybe in 10 years, nobody would need the Great Sex Rescue. <laughs> and, and the number of people that would have the kind of issues with vaginismus that yeah. so many of us have had. Yeah. It'd be so great to see that mm -hmm. not be the case. Yeah. So again, know anyone who's getting married this summer? Get them the Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex and the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Mm -hmm. um, give them to them for their for their uh, bridal shower. There's yep. great uh, discussion questions to work through when they're engaged as well yeah. um, and help them start well. Or if you're already married and things aren't going well, get them and you can turn things around. So there you go. So thanks for joining us on the Bear Marriage Podcast and join us next week for another edition as we look more about attachment theory, this time with parenting. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody.